As part of Burbs Light Up the Holidays campaign, we are rerunning podcasts of the past year with guests who know how to light it up. In this episode, we speak with artist Kenny Scharf. With multiple exhibitions, a major collab with Dior designer Kim Jones, and a forthcoming documentary, the one-time wonderkind pal of Basquiat, Haring, and Warhol has finally come into his own. This episode of Light Culture Podcast was originally released on January 15th, 2020. From everyone at Burb and Light Culture Podcast, we hope you have a happy, healthy, and safe holiday season and end of 2020. Good riddance, we say. Hi, my name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Artist Kenny Scharf is a survivor. In a career that spans 40 years, he has gone from madcap to wonderkind, to art world dropout, to OG working in a reconstituted LA studio, making one masterpiece after another. Scharf claims to have been dosed by his brother when he was 10 years old. If so, we have him to thank for the psychedelic pop surrealist paintings and sculpture that he's been making ever since he burst on the downtown New York scene in the 80s with his running mates, Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat. A life full of ups and downs, it's great to report that Scharf's definitely up again, but it wasn't easy. Friends went on to fame and fortune, but died young, whether the cause was drugs or AIDS. It got so bad that he moved to the jungle in Brazil, away from it all to live in a house without electricity. I didn't realize I was killing my career by leaving New York, he says. For a period of time, he virtually disappeared from the art world, but in the process, he had two children and rekindled his love of nature and its lush colors an experience that sustains him to this day. A documentary, Kenny Scharf, When Worlds Collide, directed by his daughter Malia Scharf and Max Bash, is in the works. We talk about being inspired by the posters he saw in head shops when he was a kid, his performances with Ann Magnuson in Club 57, the creation of his psychedelic Cosmic Cavern playpen, Hanging with Warhol, a sojourn in Miami when it reminded him of the East Village, and much, much more. So listen up. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Today, my guest is Kenny Scharf, world-famous artist, old friend, um, raconteur, when is here, lover of donuts, and uh, <laughs> happy to talk with you. How are you doing, Kenny? Mm-hmm. Buddy, over there, you're in New York. Yeah, we're in New York. Uh, the last time I visited you in LA, you were like really frustrated in a way because you had to leave your beautiful studio where you'd been like uh-huh. for almost 20 years, right? And that's right. It was like a, an enclave. It was it was wonderful. And you haven't been back since? No. So okay. Well, when you come back, 
I mean, you're going to be like, whoa. Oh, I, really? I was like, it is so much better than the old oh. studio. So, you know, sometimes you just have to go with that, and then things work out better. Cool. So how's that? I'm sad about my trees. I had all these trees, and they you know, now they're, they're completely gone. But I have a 30-foot-high ceiling, so... Yeah, so how has that affected your work at all? Let me just give a... You know, like, just describe your work a little bit, since this is, like, an audio format, and people can't really see, uh-huh. and I'm sure... Well, it changes. My work yeah. changes. Okay. Uh, I do lots of different things, and paintings, murals, sculptures... But they have a unifying, uh, you know. like, aesthetic, don't they? Uh, well, yeah, but that also changes. I have various styles... Uh, most people know me for, I guess you would call it cartoony aesthetic. Um, That's one I, word. I did coin the term back in 1981 and of pop surrealism, um, but I don't really say that anymore because it's been taken over, uh, and it, now basically it means lowbrow, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't have a new word yet to describe it. How about psychedelic? Uh, you know, it's just everything in the in the mix. It's pop abstract surrealism mixed with conceptual art. Oh, big word! <laughs> yeah. uh, would you? How about psychedelic? Does that fit in anywhere? Oh, uh, well, you know, that's always part of it. Especially if you could see what I'm working right right now as we speak, but since it's radio, you can't. Oh, God, so tell me, describe. Uh, it's very psychedelic. The background looks kind of like a tie-dye T-shirt, uh, you know, rainbow swirl kind of thing. Nice. And then, you know, we got some other action going on, can I say. So now we have to sort of like try to figure out how you got there from you know, your beginnings, right? Because, but even right from the early on, your work had that influence. Were you uh, influenced by psychedelics at an early age or, you know? Yes, actually, I was dosed by my older brother. Really? Isn't that nice? Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) On purpose? I can't prove it. How old were you? I think that's what happened to me. I was, it was like in the late 60s and I was about 10. (gasps) Yeah. Not a good, not good when you don't know wow. what's going on and you're in school. My God! But it was the late '60s, so he ended up in a kind of a place for teenagers that freak out on LSD. Oh my God! Back then, wow. And I have some good, weird memories of it all. So, were you already into the Flintstones and the Jetsons? So, because I let me also tell my audience <laughs> that that's. You know, you revived those cartoons, which I guess they were still on pretty much in the 70s, weren't they, in the 80s? But Yeah, they, I mean, they had reruns, and they still do. You still see them. I mean, they're just basically, I, I incorporated the Flintstones and the Jetsons in my vocabulary, uh, partly because I love them, and they represent the future and the past, and hence the conceptual side. Um, but I also wanted, I didn't want to make things that nobody could relate to. And I realized that if I used them, that everybody had a point of identity and identifying with these uh, icons. So it was a perfect thing for me to do. I mean, they were awesome. Yeah, but you don't do that anymore for the most part, right? I do it all. You throw them in <laughs> somewhere, you have to look carefully. Now your work is so layered, there's so much going on. 
that uh, you know you really have to look at it over and over again to get it all. <laughs> it all depends on what which what what which what I'm working on. Okay, it changes a lot. It's like changing the. I try to explain to people, it's like changing the channel, going from, you know, the remote control of my childhood. They had like 13 channels, so I think I have 13 different styles, and then you just switch over, and then you can go back to the commercials, or you can go uh, return to the drama, or go back to the cartoon, or, you know, it's like that, and then you can mix them up even, so that's kind of how I look at it. And then when you do your shows, do you feel like you're working on one of those styles or one of those stories? Yeah, at a it's time? true. When I have a whole show, I kind of have a con- concept of what I'm into at that moment. So it's, it definitely has, you know, relations to each other. And you said and you grew up in L.A. and then, you know, famously mm-hmm. moved to New York. Uh, did yep, you go I'm to school? L.A. boy and back home. Back home. I mean, it was kind of a while. Many years. Many years, right? Um, what... What does that mean to you? What did you bring? Because I saw somewhere that you were quoted that you brought to New York what New York City yeah. needed from L.A. What do you think L.A. has that New York City needs and vice versa? What does New York City have that L.A. needs? Well, when I arrived in New York, it was, uh, as you know, very gritty and and gray and down, but super fun, obviously. I'm just talking about you know the, the economy and everything. And the neighborhood was pretty gritty and gray, but everything else was pretty fun. So early on, I saw all the trains, and, and, I, and I could relate to a lot of the stuff that I was seeing on the trains looked a lot like what I saw in California van surf culture, uh, those airbrushed paintings on the vans with the bubble lettering, just like what you'd see on the trains, except an airbrush and not a spray can, and a much smaller scale, obviously. But that whole culture, I just it connected with me, with that kind of, kind of a hippie, you know, what's a Zap Comics kind of magazine mm-hmm. way. So I kind of connected to that when I moved to New York, and I just kind of feel like I brought a lot of the bright colors and um, pop of California to that moment. And what is uh, what can L.A. learn from New York in that respect from the arts? Um, well, I think, I don't know, maybe it's changing now, but L.A., for a long time I thought, had a little chip on its shoulder because it wasn't New York. Uh, and, it, and I just was like, don't try to be New York. Try to be what New York can't be, which is open spaces and outdoors and sunshine and all this. So I think L.A. really needs to take advantage of what New York doesn't have and can't have. Well, downtown, Instead of trying to make these buildings that house the art, they should take advantage of, of you know, very L.A. things. Yeah, are you a fan of downtown L.A. at all? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, I grew up here, so I just can't believe how much has changed from when... I was a kid, and to what it is now, it's funny, you know, when you grow up in somewhere and you're, you're, you're getting older and you see how much change, you know. Yeah, happened. hello, welcome to New York. I mean, the East Village and all that, come on. You can't. Yeah, I know, it's crazy when you're walking on Delancey or yeah. something like that and you just see the glass towers, it's just it's like that. 
Right. So what I'm thinking here about you in New York, I mean, it's kind of an vo- unavoidable conversation to have, exactly, right? Especially given my background and yours, that we were contemporaries yeah. in those days. You were like the first one to write about what I was doing, I think, way back then. Remember well, it's that? It's possible. It's possible. <laughs> yeah. We were way first on a lot of stuff uh, like that. And, you know, I'm very proud of it as well today. I mean, there was a whole new culture, a new way of looking and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that was very exciting. I also saw that you said you wanted, all of you wanted to be famous somehow at some point, <laughs> and, which was kind of striking to me because there was even, you know, just before you guys, right, there was that previous generation of the 70s, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the sense there was that they didn't really want to become famous. And yeah. I felt like the, the whole bringing the street culture into the conversation changed all of that, especially with the graffiti people coming in and, the, and hip-hop, where, you know, these basic yeah. outsiders that hadn't really had an opportunity to make it before, and suddenly they were in, in the spotlight, mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, it was an amazing time. And, and you were, you know, one of a, a great group that among them, you know, Keith Haring and Jean-Michel Basquiat and Andy Warhol... You guys were like kind of, there's lots of photos of you, all of them together. He was your hero. Yeah, Andy was like our, 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 our mentor in a way, our, our hero. And he actually, I think, brought most of us out to, to New York from other places. The thing about being famous, it was more about like just emulating his whole pop world of art into real life and and the popular culture itself that was so inspiring. And me, along with so many other young kids, just said, oh, I'm moving to New York. The whole idea of the superstar that he created, which was obviously not a superstar to anyone except people who exactly. lived in downtown. So, you know, uh-huh. downtown had its own, like, celebrity world, its own universe mm-hmm. of people that were super famous downtown, what that yep. means, like, among 200 people or so, <laughs> you know, but, right. like, virtually unknown above it's 14th Street. And today, they're the ones that everybody talks about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Now, now you don't have the time to to create this whole world of superstars uh, with audiences of each other because everything goes up, you know, internet famous so quickly. Yeah. So, what did Andy talk about? Like, I mean, what did you guys? If you can, because I'm always perplexed. I I would be around him here and there. You know, usually he would had that sphinx. At that point, you know, you would just not say anything. He'd just be there. He'd look at stuff. He'd take photographs. He'd carry interview magazines you know, with him. He didn't really talk that much, but what he really, what I think he was about was just was really interested in everything that other people were doing and, and wanted to know, like, what was how, like, all about you, which is like, you know, it's not, it wasn't really about him. He really paid attention to us and gave us, like, that kind of attention. So that was very supportive, I have to say, you know. Yeah, I imagine. I mean, that's true. That's a great point to make about him, that he, with all the people around him, all of, you know, his movies and, you know, those photo shoots that he would do and screen tests and things like that, it was really always about all these other people 
and he managed to bring all those people into his world. But at the same time, at, around then, he was not really popular in the art world for the most part, mm-hmm. right? You guys kind of brought him back into relevance somehow. Well, we didn't know he wasn't popular in the art world, and we didn't care. You know, we had the whole fantasy, I think, about the factory of the 60s. So when we arrived in in New York in the late 70s, that, that factory was long gone. It was been replaced by the more disco, you know, Halston Studio 54 era factory. And we just kind of created our own version, I think, of our fantasy factory, which was, you know, our club scene, I think. But also Club 57, to be specific. Is yeah, Club 57. Was kind of sure. your version of the factory, you and and That was what others. we emulated. I mean, we we wanted more than anything for Andy to walk in and to see us, like, <laughs> doing our whole thing in a way inspired by him, uh, although he never did. He never did? <laughs> no. We all met him and and got befriended him, but that was after Club 57 had ended. Oh, too bad. Tell us a little bit about Club 57, to, you know, from your perspective, how, you know, well, what drew you there? Uh, it's easy to describe because there was a show the, that took place last year, or was it two years ago? I don't remember, at MoMA, uh, and it was uh, a show about Club 57. So if you want to know more, you can get, their catalog, which is pretty cool, with John Sex art on the cover. Uh, but basically, it was a little club in the basement of a Polish church in St. Mark's Place with a jukebox and a bar and a little raised platform for a stage. And we would hold these parties basically every night, different themes, and with performances, one-night art shows, music. It was like that. So... We had each other as an audience, and a lot of people, you know, came out of there. It was like almost like a, a fun time party romp, but it was also, in a way, a, an art movement or a school of art or something like that. Right. Well, uh, you know, to, in today's terms, you were creating content, and, mm-hmm. you know, each night, if you had had, you know, YouTube or something back then, imagine right. it would have been insane, right? Every night, you would, every day, you would have another show to be. Oh, yeah. And uh, and one of the things that you were famous for in that time, I don't I don't think you actually built one of your closets in Club Fifty Seven, did you? This was something you had in your home, your cosmic yeah, cavern. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done I did installations in the club, but they didn't last long. They usually only lasted one night. But I had the initially was in, in a closet. That's why I called the closet. And then they grew and they became called Cosmic Cavern. But these environments made out of pretty much garbage from the street painted fluorescent creating kind of a an otherworldly crazy place that is very chaotic yet it's very in my opinion uh, kind of retreat from the real world so we used to hold these parties in there and and a lot of you know crazy fun and dancing and psychedelic and everything did you have that notion in mind when you thought of it, that created it, that this would be a haven for people, or was it just more fun to just make something, or that it turned it into a like haven? It was like this. I discovered this space in this crazy building up near Times Square that I was living in, and I didn't know what what I could do with it. It was it was kind of 
a closet, but whatever. So I took it over and, and it was very old. It was like it had old wallpaper in there. It was kind of creepy. And I just started finding, I was into garbage and making art out of pieces from the street. And I just started painting fluorescent and putting it in the room. And then all of a sudden it just became this cool little spot to hang out in. That was the whole environment. And it just kept growing and other artists would come and, and add to it. And, you know, then there was like video videos in there and it just became this alternate space, I guess. Nobody was really making any money at art at this point, really, right? This was just something oh, no, no, no you money. just did for love. Or but it fun. didn't cost anything, really, to live, so there was the trade-off. Right. And then this whole street art thing that uh, we talk about today that we didn't call street art back then. It was more like graffiti, that you were one of the original people going around downtown doing was the Jetsons, right? Was that your character? Yeah. Yeah, well, I did. Basically, I, as I said before, I took this iconic characters that everyone would identify, yet I transformed them in a way, for instance, I would often put, let's say, Wilma Flintstone's head on a, a snail body or a, you know, Fred on a bug body or something like that, like anthropomorphic insect alien things, but with the identifying Flintstone or Jetsons character. Uh, and then I would spray paint these all around Manhattan and, and, and Queens because I had a studio out PS1 and I would ride my bike at three in the morning from there to the East Village in Balm. And, uh, you know, today there's this like huge street art industry, right? Do you, you're like an OG. Do you feel like, you know, because sometimes people start things, but they don't necessarily get the reward later on uh, yeah. when it becomes, you know, a thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, you can relate to that comment. Well, yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, maybe not with the, the whole graffiti street art world, because I feel like I'm, they, they, people understand where I, you know, I've been doing it for so long. Right. But I, I, you know, I see a lot of things going in the art world big, big time, and I'm like, wait a second, I did that 20 years before, and, and no one give a shit. <laughs> right. So how does, how does one deal with that? And, 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 you know, just in conjunction with that question, over a career that spans all these years, how do you keep fresh? You know, what is it that inspires you to, to keep going and, and keep doing more? Well, you know, I'm just one of those kind of artists. I'm just driven, like, you know, kind of crazy. And I'm constantly learning new things. And that's why I never get bored, because I'm always exploring and doing things in a different way that makes me excited. I'm never bored. I'm so grateful for that. I get to do fun stuff all the time. Right. And how long a period do you ever go without making any art? Uh, since I was born? <laughs> well, you know, more recently, but... <laughs> there was a time in high school where I was more just a crazy party goer, but I have been doing it pretty much my whole life. Every day. You work basis. every day, right? Yeah. Since I was three. Yeah. Wow. Because they say that, you know, creative people are really happiest when they're being creative. For sure. I mean, I, I'm painting right now as we speak. I'm sitting, I'm talking <laughs> on the phone, and I'm painting. Doing two things at once. Well, you, you know, that's not supposed to be very good. 
<laughs> well, I've, I've actually created the template of uh, what I'm painting. So while okay. we're talking, I'm basically filling in. being crafty more than yeah. thinking and, of ideas. So I'm able to talk about ideas and be crafty while I'm, I'm basically rendering things that's already been laid out for my... That's how you do two things at once. I got it. So how was, uh, when you were younger, what was, besides TV, what influenced you uh, visually in that way? Did you go to museums? Did you look at art, uh, history? Not really. Like I mean, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and basically at my world was where I went on my bike, which was pretty far when I think about it, but there were no museums or anything. So my art back then was head shops, because they had posters in there, and I learned about Dali and Magritte and okay. the Kiriko and, and all those like hippie head shops. They had like surrealist posters in there. So I learned about that. Um, but I didn't really have access to art. My parents took me a couple times to the, what's the museum? The, um, the Huntington Library in Pasadena. And they have, you know, the, the blue boy and the pinky um, so that was like, okay, there's a, the, the hanging art on the wall with a big gold frame. And, you know, so I got to experience that. But no, I didn't really have art. And I they didn't have like, the classes or any um, in school? Well, I used to actually ride my bike to this place uh, on Ventura Boulevard in, in North Hollywood, I guess. It was called the Flemish Art Shop. And they would have these painting classes in, the, in their yard of this frame shop and we'd paint still lives. Uh, so I was doing that, you know, like around eight. I'd like to see what those look like. Yeah. Oh, I have them. I have one seascape <laughs> hanging right now. I love it. I have that art still hanging cause it, it looks pretty good actually. Cool. And then what about contemporary art? Do you like to go to galleries? Do you, or even, you know, what kind of, what do you like or what do you not like? I, I get to look at things more when I'm not, here at home because I'm always working. So when I travel to another city or something, I seem to be able to see more art. Um, but, you know, I, I like to go to friends' openings, you know, like, so I see art of friends or galleries that I'm connected with. So name I, names, come that's on. Kind of like, name names. What? Name names. Uh, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, curious. my old, we, we were sp- speaking about Club 57. Yes. And, that show at MoMA and my friend, my old friend, Kitty Brophy, when no one really even knew she was an artist, she showed some of her work from the seventies and I've been encouraging her to keep, keep it going or redo, re, re ignite her, her great drawing style. So she's been really full force and she's had a show here and she had a big review in the LA times and yeah, she's cool. in some show now. So, and she has some show and you should go visit, when you go in Miami to Swamp Space uh-huh. down at uh, Oliver Sanchez, yes. the, one of the old Club 27 kids as well. Mm-hmm. So Sweet. Kitty's doing good. And what about the, you know, the, the art world types? What inspires uh, you? Or what inspires you today in general, given that you know, the Jetsons and, and all that is you know, something of the past? What, is there... <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you saying? The Jetsons are of the past? No, it's the Flintstones of the past. <laughs> oh, right. The, Jets, the Flintstones <laughs> of the, the future, future, man. The Flintstones of the future are... I know you're a big you know, environmental guy. For me. I've been, 
when I when you look at the stuff that I was doing at the age of five, my all my subject matter has stayed the same. So you asked me the other thing that inspired me besides TV uh, would be nature. So I've always been a big nature boy, and I like growing things, and you know I like looking at flowers and insects and birds, and so that that is keeps me pretty. Busy yeah, your flowers around. are beautiful, in fact, the ones that you paint. I know. I see them. Well, I study nature, you know, so I feel like nature is, is my inspiration. Is, that's my religion, really. Oh, cool. Well, so and let's it's killing talk, me, actually. Well, it's killing me. The war against nature. Yeah, the war against nature. Well, speaking of, because part of your journey getting back home was moving south first to Miami, which mm-hmm. is a very kind of wild nature setting, right? Mm-hmm. And and then you went to Brazil. You got married yeah. or had some children. Well, that was actually before Miami. Oh, Brazil, Brazil was first. That's right. Brazil was first. From New York was Brazil? Yeah. yeah, New York, Brazil back in 82. Okay. I left all that hullabaloo and went somewhere where no one even knew what a New York art world was or cared. There was no electricity where I was living. There was no road. So... That was interesting. And then I decided to have, you know, a child and, and then, you know, be a married guy. Yeah. Well, thank God. World. Now you have grandchildren and it's awesome, yes, right? Yes, that's my favorite thing is my, in my life, actually, is my two grandkids who live near me. So I get to hang out with them pretty much every day. They live in the neighborhood. But when you uh, left uh, from New York, it was a, a big exodus. Oh, it was the saddest place in the world. I mean... The, it was if you were either dead, obviously you weren't living there when you were dead, or you moved away, and then there was no one left, and I just, I, I went down there. Well, um, dead thinking, from AIDS, you mean, right? Hmm? Dead from AIDS. AIDS, yeah, basically everyone died of AIDS. Or, so many of our great uh, friends. And drug super, overdose, either yeah. one or both. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that was a you dark there, time. You were there, you know, it was a yeah. terrible time that we went through. So were you kind of like re- recuperating or like just getting energy back or what? I remember walking through the streets and the whole city to me seemed like a ghost town. And then and I, remember, I remember walking at this point and it was one of those snowstorms. And, and, but everything was like melted, like slush, but it was all slush that was black and gray <laughs> from, you know, all the melting dirt. You know how it gets mm-hmm. really gross. And I thought I was walking through diarrhea, frozen, and it just made me so sick. And I was like, I have to get out of here. And that's when I moved to Miami. And did your work change when you moved after that? Was it still like sort of beautiful colors and, you know, Well, I've always been a a tropicalista. And then so from the early days of moving to Brazil, you know, I I pretty much incorporated tropical world, uh, nature, jungle, into my work, so moving to Miami was a easier way because there was well schools for my kids, which they didn't have in the place with no electricity, and a connection you know to New York. So I felt like it was a little bit of Brazil and a little bit of New York, but the truth is it was neither. And do you feel like because you know in terms of your career, you know you had to sort of reimagine yourself, right, and reinvent yourself? Cause... Oh, it was a career killer because if you imagine before the internet and you leave New York, it's basically like you just went offline and shut off your phone and said <laughs> goodbye because that's what it was like back then. Did, was that intentional or just a side? No, I, 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 I didn't realize I was 
killing my career by leaving New York. So, and then, uh, you know, because had you been in New York, do you think, uh, what? Probably wouldn't have been so quiet, let's say. I would have been, people would have seen my face and realized that I'm still alive, as opposed to when I moved down there, uh, it was almost like I just dropped off. But in in retrospect, um, it might have been the best thing, right? Because it did get you you into nature. we can't decide what would have been or could have been it's just that's what i that's what right. it was the life we did I, I, I felt like after a year down there i realized maybe i shouldn't have moved lock stock and barrel and then it took me seven more years to get out before going to miami, la back to, oh, LA, back to yeah. la with and and then in miami which was what year was that like in the 90s or yeah 90s i was there in 90 from 92 to 97. And that was when sort of uh, Miami was being rediscovered and recreated by a lot of the artists yeah. from New York. It was really fun there. when I first arrived. It, it, re- it reminded me of, and that's probably why I moved there, of the East Village uh, when it was fun, but it was on the beach. So you had you know, a lot of abandoned buildings, and you had, uh, instead of Puerto Rican street culture, you had more of the Cuban culture, and then instead of Ukrainians and Polish folks, you had a lot of old Jewish people, and then you had the bunch of <laughs> bohemians. So it, it was like kind of East Village on the beach for a while, and I, I loved it. And then it seemed like after one year I was there, it turned into all the modeling agencies basically moved down there. And then for me, it wasn't as fun anymore. And then a lot of the artists that I liked left. So I, I didn't really like it so much yeah, as far as the culture. And the artists actually revived the city, right? They used to come, like Suzanne Barch would come down with her parties exactly. from New York. All the so New Yorkers fun. would... Yeah. And, and all the places, like you were saying, on Ocean Drive were just kind of senior citizens like sitting yeah. on Crack House next door. It, was, it still looked like Scarface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is so great. Yeah, it's amazing what happened there in those years. And then when you went to L.A., so did you feel like, uh, how did you feel? Were you feel like defeated or victorious or, you know, like having to come back home? Like, you know. No, I, I wanted to move back to L.A. I decided I wanted to work and do animation, so I needed to be in oh, Hollywood. And okay. back then, you kind of needed a studio to make something in an animation. So I just decided that that's what I was going to do. And then, sure enough, really soon after I arrived, I got this deal uh, doing a, a cartoon for Cartoon Network. So I thought I had just, you know, gone to heaven. It just my dreams were coming true. Little did I know. Wow. Was a, they, after working on it for, oh, like three years and going into debt because of the hours, it was in the early days of CGI. It was actually the first CGI cartoon on television. After the whole thing, they finally aired it like once, and then they never spoke to me again, and I don't own it. Aww. And it's just a typical Hollywood story, mine plus many others, but it doesn't make it any less painful. Terrible. Yeah, I did see it, though, the first <laughs> one. I wanted more. It was also nominated for an animation award. you think they would have supported it a little bit? But no, it was just buried immediately. Yeah, so how? what did you do after that? How did you re- I went back to painting, and I said, yeah. you know, F this. Am I allowed to say that on the radio? Anything you well, want, sure. Well, I just did. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know, fuck that. And I was just like, okay, so I'm going to... Because when I, you do an animation, especially for Hollywood 
studio or something, you have to get every little step of the way like, okay, like, okay, then it's going to go like, okay, and then you have to have lunch and you have to meet about it. And then they all like put their two cents in and it's like really like that. It's really annoying. And then I realized how great it is to be an artist where you have your paint and you, and you don't have to ask anyone's permission for anything or get any okay from anyone. And it felt amazing. So in a way, it was really good for my art career to be kind of like Refocus. going so off the radar. And when I came back, it was I was grateful to be. It is a great thing that you don't have you just do it. You don't have to ask anybody. And today, in your work, which you know I'm a big fan of more than ever. I mean, first of all, your technique and skills are just you know un, unmatched and beautiful and and that's like incredible on its own but also you know it seems like you're playing with a lot of different ideas as well i know you're you're as you said you're involved with nature as a big part of your life and you've always been picking things up off the street and recycling them and Mm -hmm. putting them into your work and that's something that you're continuing and given the state of the world and the environment where we're in it seems to be much more on target than ever yeah you know, I showing people like some of this work that I have uh, from the '80s of uh, made out of plastic beach garbage from Brazil, and I say like, oh, you know, this is from the '80s, and they're like, wow, because back when I did it in the '80s, people just thought I was nuts, and now they look at it and it's like, oh, okay, and now it, and what I want to say is like, I wish it didn't have so much resonance. I wish that they would look at it now and still think it was meaningless. Mm. Uh, But now everybody knows what is going on, and you can't, you know, it's just getting so much worse all the time that it's not something that anyone can just pretend isn't happening. And you're really working it, though. I remember I went to that show, I think that same time uh, when I came to visit you, you had a show nearby uh, at your gallery where a lot of it was old TVs that had been, you know, decorated, repurposed. And, and this is something you'd been doing all the years back as well, right? Well, yeah, I've been making art, as I talked about, the Cosmic Cavern of the Closet, all that stuff from the garbage. So I was, I've always been obsessed with garbage and what we throw away and what it means to us as a society. There's so many levels about garbage other than what is also apparent, which is recycling and waste and, and, and landfill and all that stuff. And, and then even there's just so many levels of garbage because it's all been used by someone. So it, it actually also has a whole story of a human alongside of it. So the whole thing, I've always been obsessed with garbage, and, and it's, I still am. Uh, I'm working on this ongoing project right now in LA. It's on the roof of Honor Fraser Gallery, and it's continually growing until the election in 2020. And basically, it's plastic garbage tied to the roof, and it's hanging in a, a colorful display uh, and will continue growing. And I'm taking, if anyone's listening in LA, taking donations of plastic, you can drop it off in the back of the gallery, and it will get added to the the display so it's all plastic only yeah it's all plastic plastic and a lot of it is like when i'm driving in la i see these like kids castles or like you know cadillac escalade just thrown out those big plastic cars and so i i you know i take them and they look great they're all colorful and they're all tied up and 
kind of yeah it's a perfect material for you it's lucky yeah to it's have great it art around. plastic is great art material it lasts forever it's colorful it's light <laughs> fortunately yes yeah. it's the curse and the blessing at and the it's same cheap time. it's everywhere it's Sorry, rain fine. resistant it does <laughs> yeah it's it's excellent and and you know, but decorating and I don't know because you there's so many things that you have done, and uh, you know coming from L.A. the car culture, yeah, uh, that's another whole world of yours, isn't it? Like uh, oh yeah, car bombs and car customizing is part of my you know work. Uh, it's always been forever, and that is definitely part of my Southern California culture growing up. For sure. So, so, what do you do? Tell you know? Do you also put plastic on it, or paint it, or everything? No, there's two two of them. One is called car bombs, K A R B O M B Z exclamation point. Uh, so this is something I've done over 250 of them. They're basically people, sometimes strangers, sometimes friends, bring me their car. I spray paint it. It takes about 20 minutes, and then they're gone. And they're driving around the city. Most of them are in L.A. because they come to me. But also I've done many in New York, uh, Miami, Portland, Texas. They're all over and uh, a little bit in Europe and Asia. But it's something that I do. It's an ongoing public art project using cars. Uh, and then there's another one that I do, which is customizing, which is more you know, it takes longer and it's, there's some money put in, you know, like I'm working on something right now, something very cool that takes, you know, months and months to do. But you're kind of like, there's nothing that you don't want to paint. Is that fair to say? I like to have my whole aesthetic world and kind of controlled uh, in a fun way. So when we're given so many objects from designed uh, by people you know, done in gray and beige and just things that, you know, I, they don't find exciting. I want to transform them and, and change the, the use of them. So, like, if you're just using a telephone and you don't even think about it, well, we don't really use telephones right. anymore. Right, what's so a maybe, telephone, yeah. Uh, well, that's, I used to do a lot of TVs back in the day, but, or just a car, you know, boring old Toyota Corolla. It's gray, and there's a million of them in the highway. Well, just imagine if they were all painted, the traffic would be a lot better. I mean, I can't get to all the cars, but there are other encourage other people to paint cars. I don't know why cars are so boring. Right, and people pay so much for it. I guess they don't. They try to keep it like without anything on it. Keep it as clean and as possible. And it's so boring. It's like so. Why is it so sacred? Your surface of your car. It's when did it become so sacred? You can't do anything that's a good question man we have to like contemplate that so dumb yeah well we'll give we'll give our audience a chance to do that and um it was great talking with you you too i enjoyed it thank you very much me too always a pleasure so and i look forward to seeing you on my next excursion come on back you've been listening to light culture you can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.